Please turn once again to First Corinthians as I uh, put this gadget on. And as we come to, to the end of my part in this conference, let me just also express, um, as I said at the very commencement, my sense of privilege in having been asked to come and be among you in this week. I have thoroughly enjoyed the fellowship that uh, I have been exposed to among you, and as you yourselves have testified, it's um, a grand occasion to be in a place where you can fully express your convictions as to what the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ really is in the scriptures without looking over your shoulders to see whom you are hurting by expressing yourself so freely. And consequently, it's always a great time of fellowship and mutual encouragement to be in such a place. I'd also like to express my appreciation um, of your expression of appreciation with respect to the ministry of God's word as the Lord has been pleased to minister through me. I will certainly take back to our people your, your words of appreciation to them. Uh, I can assure you that the church sees this as part of its ongoing ministry uh, to the nation and indeed to the world as they give me opportunity to be away from my normal sphere of labors and go to minister uh, to others. And so they are not begrudging the invitation that was uh, extended to me and as I am here, they are much in prayer. Uh, for us. We read together then the passage that has been the focus of our attention in the last couple of evenings. First Corinthians and chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So far in looking at this portion of Scripture, we have seen the foolishness of preaching in, first of all, the, the message. And we began from there not because our text was starting from there, but because of the breakdown of our topic. We saw that we ought to be preachers of the cross, that as people are heading back home, among the many things that we have said to them, they will summarize it all, or at least see its emphasis 
as a call to look to the cross and be saved. But we also saw that the initial form that God has called us to ensure we mold our preaching after. And it is in the realm of evangelism, seeking to push back the frontier of the kingdom of darkness and ensuring that souls are saved. Then yesterday we looked at the basis of the efficacy of our preaching. And this is essentially the effectual call. When God himself attends our ministry with his own call and consequently gives life to the dead. Allow me to just emphasize the point that I raised towards the end of my message yesterday. And it is the fact that this power is to attend our preaching. We must be careful that we do not fall prey to that which is becoming popular today that is divorcing the truth. We must make sure that we do our utmost, our best, as far as preaching is concerned. Both in terms of the preparation, both of the message and the messenger, as well as the delivery of the message itself. We should preach as though everything relied entirely upon that. And yet at the same time with a heart which is crying out to God to own our labor, to bless our efforts, to speak as we are speaking. But as we come then to this last topic on our hands, the topic of conversion, we are going one stage further than where we went yesterday. Yesterday we were saying to ourselves that we were locked up with this whole issue of success. And you remember I said at the very beginning that this is something that surely we all ought to be concerned about. I would be very surprised if one of you would stand up and say that that is something that never bothered you, that from the very beginning of your ministry you were just content to speak and speak and speak. It is the very cause to which God has called us. This priestly duty of preaching the gospel that we may see the Gentiles, as it were, coming from one kingdom into the other. But this morning we are asking ourselves the question, what kind of success do we want to see? Is it mere numbers increasing on our church register? Or do we want to see to borrow the words of Peter, living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Now this is something we need to settle in our own minds because as the winds and the waves are blowing and beating, it is essentially the answer to this question that will be a safe anchor for us. 
Because when men and women have told us about their glowing number, we will want to go in and examine them. We will not be content with the fact that a hundred came forward, or a thousand came forward, or so many thousands raised their hands, or signed decision cards. We will want to say very well then, I'm coming in, I want to see the fruit of this number. Are these people obeying the Lord? Are they loving the Lord? Are they worshipping the Lord? Are they living a life of sacrificial service to this God? Because surely if they are not, we are not interested in this big story about this big And as I've been listening across meal tables about what it is that's the common thing in your own circle, it seems to me that this is one of those issues that we need to have deep and well-founded convictions about. What kind of success do we want? Brethren, what good is it to boast about thousands on our membership roll when we can only count upon a hundred fighting for the cause of our Lord Jesus Christ? And what I want to say then this morning is that nothing short of what we are considering as the foolishness of preaching will produce the desired fruit. True conversion. Nothing short of this. And I want to prove this to you by the words that the Apostle Paul speaks in that last verse we have read together when he said to the Corinthians that he had preached in the manner in which he had preached so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. What Paul is saying to begin with there is that in the light of what we saw yesterday, true conversion can only be produced by God himself. It is not something you and I can engineer with all the training that we might have, with all the latest methods that might come our way. It is not possible. I trust I made that amply clear yesterday. You see, to appreciate this, we have to ask ourselves the question, why did Paul, Take this detour that I spoke about on my first evening. Paul was up against, or better still, dealing with a problem of divisions in the church in Corinth. As he said in chapter 1, verse 12, what I mean is this. 
one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And Paul is saying, now wait a minute. This does not tie in with the way in which I came into Corinth to lay a foundation. There seems to be something that has gone wrong between the time I was among you, bringing my message to you, and now as I am getting this report. If we go into chapter 3, we can notice what he means by that. When he says in verse 10, as he returns to this subject again, which is very clear from, from the fourth verse, when he says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? But this is what he says in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. In other words, Paul is saying that the way in which I went about my ministry when I came among you was such that the fruit of the work could only be produced by the living and eternal God. As he goes on to say, even with respect to baptism, I did not put my emphasis there. Why? Because I feared that the preaching of the gospel would be such that if I made a big issue of this, if I gave you the impression that the entry into the kingdom is by Paul baptizing you, I would cause the cross to be emptied of its power. In other words, my preaching shut you up with God. It was God having dealings with your soul. And I was quite content to leave it at that. That's essentially what he's saying here. Notice the way he comes to the end of chapter 1, verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, brethren, surely those who are genuinely converted should attribute this to God and to God alone. And the way we go about our ministerial duties should speak eloquently about that fact. People should be able to sit down and see that their repentance 
must be of God. That they are saved must be of God. That there is nothing which amounts to ingenuity about our work that can be the explanation of what they are today. As it was put by the brethren, when Peter was seeking to justify what he did in Cornelius' house, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. Acts 11 and verse 18. I commence reading from the 15th verse. As I began to speak, I wasn't trying to use some kind of trickery to bring about anything. As I began to speak, something happened. The Holy Spirit came on them just as He had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Now what was, Paul, what was Peter saying? Let's pretend This is Peter's message. Chapter 10. Verse 42. He, that is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard his message. Now what was the conclusion of the brethren when they heard it? Verse 18 of chapter 11. When they heard this, they had no further objections and instead they praised God saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. These brethren were convinced this was not Peter's doing. No, it's God. And when these Gentiles in Cornelius' house were now gathered into the church of Jesus Christ, it was because God had worked a work in their hearts and lives. He had given them the gift of repentance. But also, the faith with which we believe is a gift of God. That's made abundantly clear in Ephesians 2, verse 8. I realize that there are debates over the Interpretation of that text, especially in your learned circles. 
Ephesians 2 verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And the argument is, well, it might be referring to salvation rather than by faith. But the point is, these are nonetheless a unit. Paul is still saying that it is a gift of God, not by works. So that no one can boast. But I'd like to at least go to one passage that puts this beyond debate. And it is Paul still writing to the Corinthians. In the portion of scripture that we had read together yesterday, in chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians. Having spoken about the fact in verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of God, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul goes on to speak about what nonetheless constituted his preaching. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why? Because he knew that it was in this preaching that God would infuse faith into his hearers. By giving life to the dead, bringing light into darkness. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, with reference to Genesis 1, Make his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What is Paul saying? Oh, brethren, that will be persuaded about this. Faith is not positive thinking. It's not you trying to persuade a person, despite the fact that it's still not making sense, to simply now believe that he believes. Faith is spiritual reality being seen with the eyes of the soul. And it is when God has done his work in that soul. Previously, he had heard of this thing by the hearing of the ear, so to speak. It wasn't making sense. It was like a domino that you really had to make sure nobody touches lest it falls flat. And so you kept saying to this person, now look, this is the point number one as far as faith is concerned. It's what you need to believe and so on. But when you come to ask the person after your tenth sentence what it is on earth you were saying, you can see everything is jumbled up. But when God has infused life into that I trust, brethren, the surprise I've had on many occasions has been your surprise too. How this person has come to an understanding 
that blows your mind. And he himself is able to testify that the scriptures have come alive. The cross has made sense. He himself is willing to say, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I'm quite willing to stand before the awful judgment throne of God on only this one foundation that Christ has borne the penalty of my sins in my place. And you stand back convinced that this must be God. It can't be me. It can't be the power of my persuasiveness. It must be God. But the point I want to say to you, brethren, is that if we cluster the way of salvation with the many, many things that human beings out of deep sincerity we must admit have been bringing in are we not making men attribute their conversion to these many things other than the power of God himself? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you see, the reason why I was content to shut myself up to this one means of preaching, though it was being considered as folly, was because I wanted you, dear Corinthians, when you looked back to the period I was among you and the change which took place in your life, not to attribute it to men's wisdom, but to the power of God. It ought to break our hearts, brethren. If men and women in our congregation shift from God and consider it a job not done because we have not added something else, to the bare proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. It ought to send us back into our closet with wet cheeks that our people are to a large extent still may and may worldly, carnal, thinking something other than God himself coming down, owning preaching to the hearts and souls of men can produce confession. We must go on. The foolishness of preaching alone will produce the desired fruit because it is in this kind of preaching that we call men and women to repentance and faith. 
Yes, we acknowledge that these are gifts of God. But at the same time, it is the demand that we place at the feet of our hearers. Paul, in summarizing his message to the brethren in Corinth, puts it this way in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Beginning to read from verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plot of the Jews. You know, now not just the way he keeps saying you know, you know, you know, that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And how does he summarize his message? Listen to this. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. That was his message. I was insisting on two things. If you do not do those two things, you will never enter heaven. You must first of all turn to God in heartfelt repentance. And you must also turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in heartfelt faith. Now I am amazed how so much that goes under the name of gospel preaching today has these two aspects conspicuous by their absence. Especially if you take the time to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the preaching of John the Baptist, the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and make your way through the book of Acts and notice the preaching of the great apostle. How can a man ever miss that knot of repentance and faith being demanded of the year? But I obviously know why it's missing. It's because it goes against the grace of humanity's wishes. To go among proud and fallen humanity and start demanding repentance, demanding faith, is to shoot yourself in the foot. It's folly! 
should be going to them and just promising them the various things God is going to give them if they can only do something for him. Going to fill up their pockets, give them help, and uh, just make sure that any problems in their marriage and so on is sorted out. Going to do all that for them. They could either just walk in front or sign somewhere or do something for God. But friends, the foolishness of preaching is precisely that because of these two ingredients. God has called us to call men to admit that they are in rebellion against God and to forsake that rebellious way of life. We have to call them to repent. It's an ultimatum that we are taking before them from the living God. They've been living a life of rebellion. They might call it pleasure, they might call it their rights, they might call it whatever name. But God calls it sin. And as their maker, he demands that they abandon that way of life. And come under his lordship, under his rule. Or perish. An ultimate. Obviously, we can appreciate that that must be a stumbling block to many. It must be. Pride, the ego, can't swallow that. And if God does not act upon that soul, we can well understand if that man stalls out of that meeting in a house, saying, who are you to speak to me like that? We have been called to call men to believe what God says about his son from cover to cover in this book. And not only to believe in that sense, but also to entrust their hopes for heaven square on the person and work of Christ. That's what we've been called to do. And when we go among a people that are quite willing to add Jesus to the many other credentials they hope to present at the doors of heaven, we are to make it abundantly clear that that won't do, that's the best way to roll into heaven on a religious wheelchair. They dare not do so. It must be Jesus and Jesus Alone. Again, that foolishness. 
to the unregenerate soul. I've heard people say to me, isn't that dangerous? To try and get into heaven on that one ticket. Shouldn't we sprinkle it with good works? And we have to say no. A thousand times no. And brethren, we can be fully assured that when God has done what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, of making his light to shine in this house, to give them the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will not consider that dangerous. In fact, that will be the only thing that they will want to know. Christ and him All other ground is sinking sand. Is that still a distinct note in our preaching? God forbid that any of us should have arrived at the point where worldly wise man is, where we abandon anything that's got to do with these two demands that God is placing at the feet of humanity. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. May it be clear to our hearers that this is what we are saying they must do. It's not an optional extra to Christianity. They do that or die. They do that or perish. The glory of it is this that it divides our hearers into two clean camps. Like Paul, to the first group, our preaching continues to be unpalatable. They don't like it. It's a stumbling block. It's folly. It may even make them hostile towards us. And yes, granted brethren, none of us would love to see frowns on the faces of our ears. But one thing is sure, that what it did to the hearers of the Apostle Paul and all true preachers across the generations to our own day, it will do to our hearers as well. There will be men who will not turn our preaching because the fallen nature is still in control. Pride is the infant. And unfortunately, this will not just be among those who are known for their wickedness. It will also be among our good folk in the church. 
painfully so, it may also be among our fellow leaders who will feel that the greatest mistake they ever made was to persuade that congregation to call you a Because your preaching is driving some big men and women out of the church. And that's painful. No one wants to see that group. But for many of us, we will have to see it. If that were all, that would be a sad story. But oh, again like Paul, we will have the second group. The group that Paul is referring to in this text, when he says, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. The group that he speaks about in chapter 21, rather chapter 1 and verse 26, when he says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Think back. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble, noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Paul! could write to these people, and had he been standing before them, he could look into dear, dear faces. So, transformed by the living God. Remember the way he had put it to the Thessalonians? How the gospel coming among them, to some it came with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And is able to say that wherever I go, men are speaking about you. About what has happened among you, in your lives. How you turn from worthless, useless idols to serve the true and living God. I don't need to be the one to go and show them pictures about how you stood up in front with hands raised up to convince them that there was fruit born in your midst. No! They are seeing your life. They are seeing the change. It's indisputable. You are a peaceful that they are reading, not written by human hands, but by the Spirit of the living God. And all the glory of preaching, brethren, lies in that. That when people have argued against our preaching and said whatever they want to say, there's one thing they can't argue about. That once were in rebellion, but now obey the Lord. Life, whose first love is the Lord. Father, 
Son and Holy Spirit. They are willing to lay down their lives for Him. Love, who chief delight is to sing the anthem of this great God who has made us, who watches over our lives, who has promised us a bliss untold to which we are going, who has paid such a dear price for our lives in His very blood. So, that live the rest of their lives in consecrated service to the living God. Let the world say what it will about the foolishness of our preaching. That is heaven on earth enough for us. I ask brethren again, what kind of success do you want? That is a decision you need to come up with and live by. Is it, as Paul puts it there, in chapter 3, verse 4, for when one says, I follow for another, I follow Paulus, are you not mere men? Is that what you want? People who have no love for God, you have to keep pushing them and pushing them to do anything in the name of our God. Worldly to the last degree. And things they've done God a big service if they can squeeze in an hour once a week to warm up you. And some of them perhaps you've never seen for the last many years. And they are still being numbered among the fruit of preaching and all kinds of methods added to it. Is that what you want? Or is it spiritual fruit? Spiritual fruit. Men and women, whom if you have the privilege to stand and preach at their funeral service, it will be with that conviction and utter persuasion, this person is in the presence of God right now. The life proved it beyond the best. As far as human eye can see, this person repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to say is that if it's the latter, you must get back, if you've abandoned it, to the old proven apostolic means, which the world calls foolish. But you and I know it's the wisdom and the power of God. The preaching of the gospel. Allow me 
to quote the words that were at the very beginning on the first page of the brochure that was sent out to us. It follows, says John Broder, that preaching is always a necessity. For preaching is inextricably linked to the life of the church. It was the proclamation of the good news that brought the church into being. Only the same proclamation can keep life in the church. The record of Christian history has been that the strength of the church is directly related to the strength of the pulpit. When the message of the pulpit has been uncertain and faltering, the church has been weak. But when the pulpit has given a positive, declarative message, the church has been strong. And as it was put then, a hundred years ago, I'd like to put it the same way today, the need for effective preaching has never been greater. I say amen to that. And therefore, brethren, as we return to our pulpit, like the Apostle Paul, let's do so with renewed zeal and renewed faith in what we are doing. It's the world's greatest need. Men who are utterly persuaded that this is God's ordained way of bringing His people of transforming an entire community, an entire world. Preaching is at the very center of the outworking of the eternal purpose of God from creation to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he will wrap up all history and usher us all into eternity. Let us be the people who are persuaded that we have a calling, as I said at the very beginning, to push back the frontiers of darkness. To refuse to have our message closed in and locked in the four walls of our churches. Almost embarrassed to confront the world out there. Let's refuse to be of that kind of and yet at the same time, as we come head on with this world, let's not modify this God-given message to try and suit it to the whims of fallen men. Let's ensure that it is Christ and Him crucified in all ambiguous terms, calling them in the light of the great work of God in history, to come to him in repentance and in faith. Let's do so as men who truly believe we are not alone. God by his spirit works by our side. We are co-workers with the living God, calling them. And indeed the Lord be pleased by his and indeed he will be pleased 
For that's why he sent his son as the savior into this world. He's got many people in all the tribes and nations and communities of the world. It is us to ensure we firmly place the hook of the gospel between their lips and pray him to begin to pour and to save the Lord. Let's go with that renewed faith. That long to see genuine truth even while the Lord still lends us breath. To be able to look into those dear faces in our congregation and know that this is not me. It's not my doing. It must be God. And to preach in such a way that they too will know that it's not us. It is the Lord himself who reached out to them, changed them, and is taking them on to glory. Brethren, if we but can continue faithful to the foolishness of Foolishness in the eyes of those that are dead in their sins. But oh, the glory of preaching in the eyes of those that have known the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven will be a million heavens to us. As we come before our great God, who out of an abundant grace that we cannot understand should have picked us up from among God's elect and given to us this great and glorious ministry. As we appear before him with those that he was pleased to save through us and with true humility Borrow the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here I am and the children you have been pleased to give me. It will be a million heavens for us as we hear them clothed in white raiment, praising God with voices that have been tuned by glory itself, by a sanctification finished, turned into something of the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what will heaven be like on that occasion when our Savior gives to us that crown and we will feel we don't deserve and return it back at his feet, lost in wonder, love, and praise. May that be our end, as we desire that fruit that is only worth the glory of God through conversion.
eternal and gracious God. Who are we that we should have been given the ministry of reconciliation? As we labor among many falls and often falter and often fail, we would only ask that you might be pleased to lift us up again, replenish our strength, and enable us collectively to be an army terrible with banners, the banner of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We plead that you who know our weak frame will encourage us, even on this side of the grave, to see something of the fruit that we long to so that have genuinely repented, genuinely put all their hope in Christ and Him crucified. Lord, we pray, do this for us. We are unworthy to even ask this of you, but all oh, for the sake of Him who died and shared.